Then our, our chapel campus and our venue across campus, Mountain Valley, as well as Cactus, I invite all of you to stand as well. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and follow along as I read our gospel story. <clears throat> Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray as you remain standing. Father, uh, we want to rightly live before you. We want to know you and love others. That's our goal as followers of your son, Jesus. And so I pray that as we model our lives after him, even in this profound story before us here today, that God, you'd give us insight and wisdom into the truth contained here. And that, Lord, as we realize the truisms of your gospel and how to live rightly before you, God, our commitment will be to follow these things and to live them out. So that's our end goal today, to love you, to know you, and to love others. We pray these things in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. A couple of years ago, a show came out that you might have seen. It had an eight-season run. It was one of Discovery Channel's greatest shows ever. It was called Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. How many of you saw it? Raise your hand if you saw it. And you guys watch way too much TV. It was a... It was actually about a guy who goes around the country trying to find the dirtiest jobs possible, real and true jobs that people have, and then he spent some time actually doing these jobs. I watched the show quite often. Uh, during the show's run, uh, Mike was a sewer inspector. He was a mud raker. He was a hot tar roofer. He was a pig farmer, a charcoal coal factory worker, a uh, demolition workman, a paint truck cleaner, and even a buoy repairmen. It was all about America's dirtiest jobs. And listen to what Roe said about this show. I think you'll see where we're going with this in a minute. He said, and I quote, we wanted to do a show that pays tribute to the men and women who earn a living doing things that you and I would never want to do. To honor real people by rolling up our sleeves, literally taking an honest look into their world and ultimately magnifying the importance of what they do to earn a buck. It was dirty jobs. It's the jobs that you and I don't want to do, but nevertheless still need to be done. And this show was simply highlighting these jobs. And when you think about it, folks, here's my point. The topic that we've been looking at here this fall at our church is pretty much a dirty job <laughs> when it comes to all the relational things that we have to do throughout the week. I mean, there's lots of things that we get to do on a relational level that are just joyful. I mean, we get to encourage one another, be kind, care, listen. We get to give gifts. Christmas is coming up. We get to enjoy activities with someone we love. We get to share meals together, even travel together and go on vacations. But the reality is, is that if you're going to be in relationship with anybody and it all get close, there's also going to be times that you're going to have conflict. 
And conflict is a dirty job, but it's a job that still needs to get done, and that's why Jesus is teaching us here how to deal with conflict. And so we have one more conflict scenario that we need to unpack in this series that we just read about in Mark chapter 3. And I got to tell you, this takes us to the mountaintop here uh, because it shows us probably the worst thing about conflict that makes it such a dirty job. And so here's our main point this morning, and you got to dial into this, and this is what the story teaches us, and that is that the very nature of conflict makes it a high-risk, high-cost venture. I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but you'll see where we're going with this in a minute here. Uh, what Jesus teaches us here is that the very nature of conflict, the very nature of it, makes it a high-risk, high-cost venture. In other words, one of the things that makes conflict the kind of relational activity that most of us want to avoid, even though it's a job that needs to get done, is that it carries with it the potential of great risk and even great cost even though we also know that it has the potential to bring great growth and depth to our relationships as well. And so what we need to dial into this morning is the fact that conflict, though desperately needed, I'm going to argue that all this morning, that we need to stay in the ring with conflict, is also something that most of us are tempted to avoid because it comes at such a high risk and even a high cost. I mean, to be sure, if you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning and I probed a little bit about conflict that you've had up to this point in life, you'd start to see what I mean. I'd ask you, have you ever had a friendship severed, at least temporarily, if not permanently, because of conflict? And most of you would say, yes. Have you ever been deeply wounded by another person in the realm of conflict? Yes. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced feelings of heightened anger and disappointment as a result of conflict? Yes. Have you ever wanted to just run and avoid somebody because of conflict? And the answer is yes. You see, we've all experienced this reality that conflict is risky and that it's costly, and that's precisely what Jesus is showing us in this story before us today. I mean, think about this story here and track what's happening in it. Uh, Jesus goes into the local synagogue, church back then, for practicing Jews. It's the day of worship for Jesus, a Saturday back then, Sunday for us today. It's an innocent scene at the beginning of Mark chapter 3 here. Jesus is doing what you're doing right now. He's going to church. Uh, but, but right away, the effects of all the built-up conflict that Jesus has had in chapter 2, remember there were four conflict scenarios that Jesus has had in chapter 2, begin to pile up, and it says in verse 2, right in the middle of church there, that the religious leaders were watching him. Do you see that there? They were watching him. They were waiting to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. I mean, some of you think you have it hard in church because you're having conflict with certain church people. At least the religious leaders, me, are not watching you in order to accuse you. But that's exactly what was happening with Jesus here. And you might remember what that's about. From last week, we learned this, that it's the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day for the Jews, nobody did work. That's what the Sabbath is about. It was one of the Ten Commandments. And yet Jesus was starting to do things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders labeled as work. 
You might remember what they'd done with this, this simple commandment found in the Old Testament that you should honor the Sabbath day. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, I taught you last week, had developed 39 categories of what qualified as work or not. It was found in a, in a document that would eventually be written down in the second century called the Mishnah, but it was in oral form in Jesus' day. Everybody knew it, and they had added all these categories of things you should not do on the Sabbath that, that they were waiting for Jesus to do. And when it came to healthcare, because that made the list of 39 things, they had a very simple and clear rule. And that is that if it was a life-threatening illness, you could provide enough first aid or injury uh, to prevent somebody from dying on the Sabbath, uh, but you couldn't cure on the Sabbath or just treat an illness on the Sabbath. So, eventually, so, so essentially, the religious leaders were saying that doctors needed to rest on the Sabbath as well, so you couldn't cure on the Sabbath, you could only save a life on the Sabbath. This was the rule that they added uh, to the Sabbath commandment. And so healing would obviously be considered a cure, so they were waiting to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, and if he did, they were going to accuse him of breaking God's law. That's what's happening here in this passage. And yet we all know what Jesus is going to do, because we know Jesus. And we know his track record. And sure enough, he finds a guy with a withered hand. That's all we're told. I like how one politically correct Bible expert says it in his commentary. He says it's a dexterously challenged man. Uh, that's the guy that Jesus finds. Possibly it was the result of polio. Maybe he had a stroke and there was blood flow cut off. We don't know why. He just had a withered hand. This is the man Jesus finds. And after a brief confrontation with the religious leaders, which we're going to look at in a minute, Jesus heals this man. And by verse 6, we find Jesus smack dab in the middle of conflict again. Look at verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And this brings us now to our main point. This is what I need you to see. The conflict that Jesus has been involved in, the conflict that God the Father wants him to be involved in, because conflict is something we need to navigate this side of heaven, is now going to come with a high cost and some high risks associated with it. And this is what verse 6 is saying. I mean, notice that it says there first that the religious leaders held counsel with the Herodians. Uh, do you guys know what that means, the Herodians? You have to know a little bit about first century culture to get that. Just suffice it to say this. This would be like joining ranks with an enemy in order to defeat a worse enemy. Uh, that's what the Herodians were to the religious Jewish leaders. You see, the Herodians were people who aligned themselves with Herod Antipas, who was the governor of Judea. And this guy was completely sold out to a very secular and decadent way of life. Historians tell us that Herod Antipas only cared about himself and his power and his pleasure. He was your quintessential, tyrannical, self-obsessed leader. And so the Jewish leaders hated Herod Antipas and all the Herodians, his followers and supporters, because it went against everything that they stood for. But they hated Jesus even more. And they knew that if they could convince Herod that Jesus was going to cite an insurrection, that he was going to go against the grain of the Greco-Roman world, then he could get Herod against 
Jesus. And so they were basically befriending an enemy in order to get back at a worse enemy. The conflict is reaching a boiling point here for Jesus. And when it says that they wanted to destroy him, this is the second thing I need you to see in verse 6, they weren't kidding. They literally means that they wanted to kill him. In Exodus 31 verse 14, it says that the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death and death by stoning. They were convinced that Jesus broke the Sabbath, so they wanted him dead. And so no more second chances, no more excuses, no more dialogue. Please don't miss this, guys. It's high cost time for Jesus in the conflict he was having with the religious leaders of his day. And the point is clear, and this is what you and I need to wrestle with, and that is that if we are going to do life Jesus' way, if we're going to not shy away from conflict, especially when truth is involved, and especially when those that we love are involved, because we don't want to get out of the ring with them, then the reality is, is that there's going to be times that conflict comes at a high cost and with a high risk for us as well. And you know, intuitively, we all know that conflict carries with it this potentiality. Again, if you and I were having a cup of coffee today and I said to you or asked you, has there ever been a time where, where conflict started out kind of benign and before you know it, it got cancerous, my guess is that you've been there and done that. Uh, there have been times where you've had a misunderstanding with somebody and it just exploded into something much bigger. There have been times where you've had anger with somebody and it turned into rage, where you had a small relational rift with somebody and it turned into a total relational breakdown. You see, this is why most of us avoid conflict, because we know intuitively that it comes at a high-risk, high-cost kind of deal. And as a result of that, there are many of us here today that basically say, I don't like conflict. It hardly ever produces any good, and so I think I'm just going to avoid it. I mean, some of you are thinking right now, Jamie, you're proving my case. I mean, the second that you said conflict is a high-risk, high-cost venture, I thought, you're right, that's why I don't pursue it. That's why I run and avoid it. That's why I don't want anything to do with it. Because we truly believe that because conflict is a high-risk, high-cost venture, as the Bible says, it's better than not to risk anything at all and hope that it doesn't cost us too much. And so tell me if this isn't true. Many of us, or maybe even people in your loving sphere of influence, have become masters at avoiding conflict, at sweeping things under the carpet, at putting things on the back burner, because we truly believe that if we just let sleeping dogs lie, then maybe they'll stay lying. Or we believe that if we can just put something under the carpet, then nobody's going to see it. Nobody will be the wiser. But you see, here's the catch-22, guys. And this is what you need to dial into this morning. And that is that in most cases, it is actually worse to avoid the conflict than it is to enter into the tunnel of chaos of conflict. It's true. As painful, risky, and potentially costly as conflict is, because it is, and this is what Jesus shows us, it's actually worse in the end to avoid it or to try to run from it, especially when the conflict is over either an issue that involves truth or a person that you truly 
care about. Because you see, avoiding or ignoring conflict has two consequences that most people don't realize uh, that actually make it worse than trying to navigate it to a resolve. And the first consequence is simply this, that it lacks integrity. It lacks integrity. In other words, if there's an issue between you and another person that is an important issue, that might be considered a truth issue, or if the person that you're in conflict with is somebody that you deeply care about, think about it. When you say you're going to avoid the conflict, then you're either saying that that issue doesn't matter to me, or, and some of us don't see it like this, that person doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'd rather just ignore the person than deal with the issue between us. That's what we're saying many times when we avoid conflict. And you see, Jesus, who, by the way, loved all people, even these stubborn, off-base religious leaders, and Jesus, who embraced all truth, models for us that though conflict is high risk and high cost, it's still worth entering into if you love people and if you love truth. And then as you're chewing on that, notice that a second consequence that avoiding and ignoring conflict carries with it is that it leaves no opportunity for growth that working through conflict can produce. In other words, it doesn't allow you and others to work through the issues and grow in the process. And it doesn't allow God to do his work that he sometimes does best in the tunnel of chaos when we're having conflict with others, and you all know what I mean by there, it doesn't allow him to do his work in other people's lives when we avoid conflict. You see, for some of us, our motto in life is this, no pain, no pain. I mean, that's how we live. If we can just avoid pain at all costs, then hey, we're doing well. But the reality is, is that God's motto is slightly different, and you've heard it before. God's motto is no pain, no gain. Amen? Let's take another run at that. Amen? Amen. It is. And I could point to you Bible verses like Romans 5 verses 1 through 4 that clearly tell us that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the reality is God is in the pain business but turning pain into gain. You know, maybe this example will help. I have, I have friends over the years, and some of you do as well, that have gone through um, marital breakdown, good Christian friends, who none of us ever thought would experience the dissolution of their marriage. It was probably one of the bigger shockers to me when I first became a Christian and then a pastor is that, you know, you kind of label people. You don't mean to, but you kind of say, well, you know, that marriage, I mean, yeah, they're going to be in trouble for the rest of their lives. And, and, and then you look at other marriages and you say, wow, rock solid, they're going to do well, and I'm just not worried about them. But then what happens is, because this world is so insidiously fallen, is that some of those marriages that even I as a pastor said, they're, they're never going to struggle. I mean, I don't do that anymore because they tend to struggle, some of them. And usually what I've noticed is that they struggle because there's some hidden sin or hidden life that gets exposed and conflict ensues as a result. And then in not being able to navigate that conflict very successfully, I've seen good and seemingly godly marriages end. And my guess is that you guys have witnessed that as well. Now, here's where it gets tricky, though. In each of the scenarios that I've personally observed over the years, and there have been a few, some have actually argued with me that if the one party had simply ignored the hidden sin, 
that got exposed, if they had just buried it, if they had said, hey, let's just let this thing lie and let's not deal with it, then maybe the marriage would not have ended. I've actually had people in my office arguing that, that if the anger problem would have just been ignored and covered up, if the affair had just been glossed over, or if the out-of-control materialism would have been placed on the back burner, if the constant lying would have been ignored, then everything would have been copacetic, Jamie, and the marriage would not have struggled so. There's actually Christians that think like that. But we got to ask, is that really correct? I mean, would truth have been upheld by such avoidance? Truth about sin, truth about integrity, truth about how a relationship, an intimate relationship, is supposed to work. And also, would any growth have ever, ever happened if sin that can fester in one's life is never brought to light? Because Jesus said everything in darkness should be brought into light. Would any growth ever happen if we ignore what eventually comes to light? I think we all know the answer to that. And so the point is obvious, guys. Conflict does come with a high level of risk and a potentially high price. I mean, relationships can be threatened. Hurts can be had that leave emotional scars for years. Families can struggle. But at the same time, avoiding it or running from it does no good either. In fact, it's even worse at the end of the day. If you don't hear anything else in this series that we've been in, through five conflict scenarios that Jesus has, then hear this, uh, that conflict indeed must be entered into in order for God to do his best work in your life and in the life of those you love. So once we get this, once we understand that this is the very nature of conflict, let's not sugarcoat it, that it's high risk, high cost, but it's something we need to enter into anyways, it's a dirty job, what do we do then? How do we respond to this catch-22 of conflict, that it's no fun, but it has to be entered into? In our time remaining today, and then into next weekend when we wrap up this series, I want to leave with you three things that have been immensely helpful to me in navigating conflict. These are three things that I'm going to show you come right from Jesus in these six verses here, in his last conflict scenario here, at least of this series, uh, three things that you and I can do modeling after Jesus to successfully navigate conflict. And I'm going to share with you just one of them here today in the few minutes that we have left before we go to our elder fund, and then we're going to pick up the other two next week. This is why this is a part one and part two message. So here's what I want to leave you with today, and I think you're going to like this, and that is that when faced with high-risk, high-cost conflict, we need to utilize the full arsenal or the full relational arsenal that God has given to us. And you're saying, what? Uh, let me repeat that. Uh, Jesus is going to show us, as a man who is fully human, but also fully God, that when you and I are faced with potentially high-cost, high-risk conflict, we need to utilize the full relational arsenal that God has put at our disposal. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look again at the story that we read earlier, and notice with me how Jesus does this. It says right off the bat there in verse 1, and it's easy to miss, it says that Jesus again entered the synagogue. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. And I want you to focus on that word that I put there in yellow, <laughs> the word again. You see, the synagogue was where the Jewish religious leaders were. 
These are the people that Jesus has had four bouts of conflict with, all recorded in chapter 2. So it's telling us that Jesus entered again into the place, the lion's den, where he has had conflict. I'm telling you guys, if ever a small, seemingly insignificant word in the Bible is not so, this word again would qualify. Jesus is entering personally and relationally into the realm of conflict. He's not going to write him a letter. He's not going to send a courier. He himself, don't miss this, is entering again into conflict upfront and personal, close and relational. So he didn't avoid it. He didn't run from it. He got relational with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders and entered back into the ring with them. Now, hang on to that and, and realize that, that, that as the things go on there, uh, that indeed they were upset with him and they were waiting to pounce on him and accuse him. And look at what happens next in verses 3 and 4. It says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And I don't miss what's going on here as well. I, I, I thought about this. You know, what, what could Jesus have said? What would some of us have said if we were in Jesus' shoes? The way most of us handle conflict, we probably would have done this. We would have walked up to the Pharisees as we've entered again into the synagogue, and we would have said, here is the deal, guys. You're wrong. I'm right. Again, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He, he had the right to do that. Uh, and, 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 instead of, and instead of just listening to them or dialoguing with them, we probably would have blasted through their defenses and, and basically said, you're wrong, I'm right, take that, case closed. But it's fascinating. When you look close, Jesus doesn't do this at all. Uh, what Jesus does, and most Bible experts point this out, is that he tries to reason with these confused and angry religious leaders by dialoguing with them in the form of a question. It's a rhetorical question, to be sure, one in which the answer is obvious, uh, but it's a rhetorical question. Is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Most Bible experts point out that Jesus is attempting a non-defensive dialogue with them to try to reason, as we saw last week, with them. And so Jesus is dialoguing with the Pharisees. He enters in relationally, and he begins dialoguing. And then notice a third thing going on here. We're going to add all this up in a minute. And that is that Jesus is sharing his heart with them in the form of this question. In other words, he's sharing with them his motivation as to why he's going to do what he's about to do, and that is heal this man with the withered hand. He basically shares that his entire motivation for seemingly transgressing the Sabbath, but he really wasn't, it was their man-made boundaries that he was transgressing, is because he aches for hurting humanity, because he loves all people, even people that are plagued by diseases and accidents and hurts and failures and even spiritual battles. That's what Jesus has been doing up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. And that it's very much worth doing good on the Sabbath than it is to ever withhold good. Jesus is sharing his heart here. Do you see that? So let's add all this up. Look up on your screen here. Essentially what Jesus is doing here, and you don't want to miss this. This is going to be very profound for you and I in just a minute, 
is that Jesus gets relational, upfront, close, and personal. He gets dialogical with them. He engages in dialogue with them through the form of that question, and he shares his heart. This is how Jesus responds to potentially high-cost, high-risk conflict. This is his M.O. He utilizes the full relational arsenal that God the Father has given him as one who is fully human and yet obviously also fully divine. And some of you are saying, well, big whip, this is kind of simple. I mean, these are things that that, that you and I could do. (laughs) But the question is, do we? You see, as I've thought about it over the years, here's what I've noticed about the average evangelical church-going Christian today, and that is that we do the opposite of Jesus when we're faced with conflict. Look up here on the screen. Here's what we do, and that's that instead of getting relational, we get technical. Instead of engaging in dialogue, we engage in monologue. And instead of sharing our heart, we share behaviors, usually the other person's behaviors that bothered us. It's the way that the average Christian today approaches conflict. We get technical. We engage in monologue, and we share only behaviors, not our heart, usually other people's behaviors. So again, let's impose this upon Jesus's scenario. If some of us were in Jesus's shoes with the Pharisees, we would basically walk into the synagogue and say this, hey, you guys have massively missed the boat. You don't get what I've been trying to say to you. You're not hearing me. You ever found yourself saying something like that? So listen up, Pharisees, and read my lips. It doesn't say in the Bible that you can't heal on the Sabbath. Nowhere, nada. So let's get technically correct here, guys. And because it doesn't say this, and because you've added a bunch of man-made rules to this whole thing that God never told you to add, don't blame me for what you don't understand. Blame yourselves. Now, anything else we need to talk about? See, that's the way. I'm telling you, I've observed Christians for years. This is the way people confront me. They make an appointment. They come into my office, and they got a legitimate beef with something I've done. I got no problem with that. But they come in with both barrels loaded, and they're pulling the trigger twice. <laughs> and I do it myself with people. I mean, I'm not immune to this. Where? Here, give me the screen here again, guys. What happened here? We lose it? There we go. Perfect. Where? Uh, I'm going to get technical with you. Where we get technical... And we engage in monologue, and we share behaviors. This is the way that most of us function. And all I can tell you guys is how many times that I have entered into potentially explosive conflict armed not with technicalities, but relationalities, not with monologue, but dialogue that truly wants to listen, and not with pointing fingers at another person's behavior, but with sharing my heart And though it's not foolproof, I'm a realist. I got to tell you, there have nonetheless been plenty of times where this has worked. And I've been able to navigate conflict to a successful place, a satisfactory place, where I believe God is honored. And by the way, so did Jesus on many occasions. I I, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, this is good and fine that Jesus shows us his pattern. But do you realize it didn't work for him here? I mean, how do you make sense of that, Mr. Theologian? I, I, I mean, you're saying that this is a pattern he set, and he tried it here, and, and it didn't work. In fact, it says, have you read verse 6, Jamie? It says that they're going to destroy him, and, and that they're linking arms with an enemy. And I'll grant you that. That, that, that. You're right. It's not foolproof. In this situation, it didn't work. And quite frankly, with many of the Pharisees and religious leaders, 
we're a very difficult crowd. It's not going to work with them. Uh, but you know, you got to read on in the Bible. Have you ever read the rest of the Gospel of Mark? Have you ever read Matthew, Luke, and as we're going to study over the next couple of years here at our church beginning next month, the Gospel of John? Because here's what you're going to find, is that there are plenty of times where Jesus imposes this same pattern of being relational, dialogical, and sharing his heart with countless people when he was here on planet Earth, and guess what? It worked. He was able to navigate conflict scenarios to a place that honored God. You're saying where? Well, how about when he restored Peter from his denial and betrayal? Jesus applies relationality. He's sitting at the sea having breakfast with Peter. And then he dialogues with Peter. He asks him three questions back to back. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's dialoguing with him. He wants to hear the answers. And then when he hears the answers, have you read the text? He shares his heart with Peter. He says, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's being relational, dialogical, and he's sharing his heart, and it restored Peter. Or how about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? We're going to look at that passage next year. Again, Jesus is sitting with her and the religious leaders and others in the temple, just teaching them and talking with them. He's being very relational. And then he dialogues with the religious leaders, and again, this woman caught in adultery, where he answered their question about Moses and the law with let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then when they all leave, he dialogues with the woman and he says, where are they? Is there no one here to condemn you? And then in a touching moment, Jesus shares his heart with this lady. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Be freed up, go and sin no more. It's an amazing story. And by the way, this pattern continues on. The woman at the well Zacchaeus when he's caught up a tree, the calling of Nathaniel as a disciple in John chapter 1. It's all over the place. Time after time, when confronted with potentially high-cost interchanges that were charged with conflict, Jesus responded with the full strength of his relational arsenal, up front, close, and personal, dialogue and sharing his heart, and on many occasions this diffused the conflict and allowed him to navigate things toward a successful and God-honoring place. And the obvious point is this. You and I can do the same. We can. But we have to make a commitment in our lives to avoid technicalities, to resist monologue, and certainly not just focus on other people's behaviors, but share our heart as well. And more than anything else, we need to avoid avoiding because you do that and you communicate, I don't care about you at all. You're not even worth fighting for. And the issue doesn't mean much to me any, anyways. So we stay in the ring, but we remain like our Savior, Jesus, highly relational in the way we approach people around us. I shared an illustration last night that I'm not going to share today. I just, I just, I don't feel comfortable with it. If you can somehow track down a CD of Saturday night, you can hear what I'm saying. And some of you will do that. You'll be obsessed with that for the rest of the day. But, uh, but, but, but I woke up this morning and thought, well, you know, how can I wrap this up with the people, you know, here? And, and, and I started smiling as I was laying there in bed because I thought, you know what? I don't lack material on how I've applied or not applied this over the years. I mean, the pastor is just mired in conflict all the time. I remember one of the first times that I uh, experienced this temptation between being technical, monologue, and sharing others' behaviors, but also knowing I need to follow Jesus' way. It was way back in 1994. I was a young associate pastor in Detroit, 
and I was just learning to cut my teeth as a pastor and even how to manage and work with other pastors. The elder board in my church had tasked me with finding our next youth pastor. So we did a nationwide search, and we flew to different places, and we interviewed a bunch of youth pastors, found one in California, which we thought was kind of cool, especially if we could convince them to come to Detroit, which we did. And, and this guy was a national leader in Sun Life, which was a movement then, and, and we were able to convince him to come to our church in Detroit and be our youth pastor. The elders needed to approve that hire. I was not an elder. I was the associate pastor, but I sat in on every elder meeting because we only had a few pastors, and we were all one team. I can still remember the night that we were going in to discuss this candidate, who again, I had found, I had worked on, and I had put together all the materials on, and as we were walking into the meeting, uh, all the elders walked in, the senior pastor walked in, and as I was just about to walk in, the chairman of the board put his hand on my chest, and he said to me, we got it from here, Jamie, uh, you, we don't need you for this part of the meeting. And I remember obviously being taken off guard, and I don't like anybody touching me and things like that, and so I... <laughs> I, I looked at him and I just said, hey, you know, I understand that and that there's sometimes we don't want me in the meeting, but I got to tell you, I, I really worked hard on this. I think I have a lot to add. I won't vote, but I really want to be a part of this discussion. This guy who's actually a good man, uh, but he was a colonel in the army. Uh, he didn't take dialogue very well. And, uh, and, and he looked at me and he said, we got it from here. You're out. And he shut the door. And I remember sitting there as a young associate pastor, and I'm, I'm seminary trained, I've committed my life to the ministry, and as you can imagine, every alarm bell was going off in me. I was so mad. Years, years later, through counseling, I would learn that before the anger, <laughs> before the anger, I was actually hurt. I was disappointed. I was sad. I learned to discover a lot of other feelings, but in that moment, what I really discovered was I was mad. And so I went home, and I didn't sleep at all that night, and I was writing my resignation letter, and I was so ticked. I came in the next day. They had voted to hire this youth pastor, but I said to my senior pastor, I'm out. And I said, I'm not putting up with any of this stuff. And I said, I'm out. And I said, and I'm going to make an appointment with the chairman of the board. No, I'm going to write him a letter, and, and I'm going to let him have it, and I'm going to tell him why I'm out. We didn't have these categories back then, but my senior pastor was pretty smart, Essentially, he said to me, okay, if you want to get technical, if you want to engage in monologue, if you want to share his behaviors, go ahead and do it. But he said, I can promise you if you do that, if you take that route, you will be out, and I'm going to miss you, and, and I really think you're going to regret it in the long run because I think God called you here. He, he said, what he did to you wasn't fair. It was wrong. He said, he's a colonel. He's not perfect, and, and he should have involved you. He got authoritative. Your pride is hurt. You're, you're upset. I get it. He said, but you have a key choice here, Jamie, how you approach him how you share this with him is going to make all the difference. Again, at that point, I'd had to decide what to do. And again, I didn't have these categories back then. I hadn't done my study on Mark yet. But essentially, my, which is why you guys have a one-up on me from back then, my pastor basically said to me, get relational, meet with him in person. Don't share this in a letter. Just make an appointment with him and meet with him and ask him what he was thinking in that time, why he made that decision, what was up with him. And then he said this. He said, don't tell him how mad it made you. Just share with him how it made you feel. Share with him your heart. And he said, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, you just might find some resolve. It was funny. I, I want to be realistic here. I did meet with this man, and, and I did all that my pastor Kevin told me to do. I, I didn't come in all defensive. I came in and shared with him how hurtful it was and all of this. 
And, and, and it's funny because he, he kind of met me halfway. Again, colonels don't apologize very often. And, and he said to me, well, if I had to do it again, you'd still be out. He said, I didn't want you in the meeting. It was our decision. You weren't quite up there in the ranks yet, even though you did all the legwork, but that's what sergeants do. And he goes, you were not going to be a part of that meeting. But then he said, but I handled it the wrong way. He said, this is a church, not the military. And I shouldn't have put my hand on your chest. I shouldn't have been so harsh. I should have told you way before that this was my plan. And he said, I do apologize for hurting you that way. I thought, okay, good enough, good enough. And to this day, we have remained friends, even though I think he was wrong to this day. <laughs> I think he was wrong. I would not do that to somebody like that. But as we talked about last week, and as we're going to talk about next week, there are some times where you have to be a man or be a woman and agree to disagree. Amen? That's just part of relationship. And I would never want to have lost that relationship. Here's what I know about some of you. And that's that some of you have scenarios right now in your life where hanging in a balance is whether you're going to follow Jesus in this way or not. I mean, this week you're going to be so tempted to get technical and to engage in monologue and just let them have it. And you're going to feel justified in doing so, as we tend to do. But I'm telling you, it won't lead to the godly place you're looking for. Following Jesus will. And so apply this to your scenario. Just dream, envision what it might be for you as you pray about this, if you'd entered in in the way that Jesus would enter in, again into the synagogue, again into the lion's den, relationally with you fully present, and then engage in dialogue, ask some questions, uh, just probe a little bit why the person did what they did and, and what they were really thinking. Get incarnational into their world and, and see what God does with that. And then, true to form, share your heart. Share your hurts, share how it felt with you, use lots of eye language, but see what God does with that. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always lead to full resolve, but it's better than the opposite. It's better than getting out of the ring. But we're going to call our ushers forward here in just a minute to engage in our elder fund offering, which is what we do once a month here and in all of our venues for, uh, for those in need in our community. What a great time for us to do this, to help those in need. Before we do that, why don't you bow with me and let's pray and pray for you as you head out here in just a minute. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you, God, that you show us the way that leads to truth and leads to life because it leads to Jesus. So God, help us to be ones who follow him in his ways as well as cling to him as our Savior and our Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.